Nuclear good news. Is such a thing even possible? You bet! For those who oppose nuclear and all its various transgressions, this last month or so has been chock-a-block full of amazing breakthroughs, actions, dare I say it, wins. Benchmark moments in legislation that mark what we will look back on as milestones. And not just one or two, a lot! Such as when Illinois passed legislation to revoke an existing law that placed a moratorium on nuclear new build in that state. Everyone thought it was a done deal, and the nukesters were already slapping each other on the back until the governor pulled a surprise veto out of his hip pocket. So how significant was this? It takes a veteran activist, someone who's been on the front lines of the battle for more than 40 years, to provide the proper perspective. And when he tells you... This was really a referendum on are we going to have a pro-nuclear future in Illinois or a renewable energy future in Illinois? And the time for equivocation on the part of environmental groups, legislators, is over. It's time for the environmental community as a whole to galvanize around a renewable energy future and not a nuclear energy future. And that's really what is being unleashed here. Well... When Dave Kraft of Nuclear Energy Information Service, based in Chicago, puts it in such an historical perspective, and then you hear from others who got to see their hard work against nukes pay off, you get an inkling that maybe, just maybe, we can still find our way out of that awful, dangerous, deadly seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a special, really special edition as we focused on good news. It's so nice to be able to say that. We hear from an ecstatic Karen Haddon of the Seed Coalition in Texas about a federal court's totally unexpected ruling on an ill-advised high-level nuclear waste dump. Author and downwinder Mary Dixon tells us about a recent breakthrough on the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. Dave Kraft of Nuclear Energy Information Service in Chicago provides perspective on his governor's recent veto of nukester-backed legislation. And Mana Joe Green, the recently retired Environmental Action Director of Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, gives us details on New York's actions to dump, quote, decommissioning company Holtec's planned radioactive water dump. It's a stunning lineup of can I call it pro-anti-nuclear news? Let's just call it good news and relax into it for this full episode. 
Today is Tuesday, September 12, 2023, and here is this week's nuclear good news. And if that's not a different perspective, I don't know what is. Starting out with perhaps the happiest, most ecstatic interview I've conducted for Nuclear Hot Seat since San Onofre shut down. Karen Haddon is the Executive Director for the Sustainable Energy and Economic Development, or SEED, coalition in Texas. The group works for clean air and clean energy, supporting affordable energy efficiency and renewable energy solutions to meet our energy needs. Karen has been involved with numerous nuclear issues in Texas and the Southwest, and here we catch up with her the day after a momentous decision was made on one of them. We spoke with Karen Haddon on August 28, 2023. Karen Haddon, it is terrific to have you on Nuclear Hot Seat this week. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. We so rarely have good news to share with each other, and you've got a big honking piece of it. Tell us what just happened. Okay, first of all, we are absolutely thrilled. We could not be happier. We have just received word of a court decision out of the Fifth Circuit Court in New Orleans that actually kills the license for the high-level radioactive waste storage in Texas. It was an active license that had been granted by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and they vacated it, which means it's dead. It's null and void. It's kaput. We won. (laughs) (laughs) How often do we get to say those words? We are thrilled. So that people can understand the magnitude of this win. What was being proposed to be done with this site? What was this going to mean? Yeah, the company WCS, Waste Control Specialists, started working on this in 2016, where they were going to bring from all over the country, all of the most deadly high-level radioactive waste and dump it in Texas. In Texas, it would be above ground, creating terrorist risks. And for people who live there, This is like not just one nuclear reactor in their backyard, but about a hundred. And environmental injustice of the highest magnitude. So we have been fighting this since day one. They wanted to bring 5,000 metric tons originally, but up to 40,000 metric tons of this deadly waste, haul it across the whole country, exposing people every bit of the way putting aquifers at risk if any kind of leak happens. This stuff can be spread by air as well. Just creating risks that did not need to happen for a site that was supposedly temporary, not permanent. And if this stuff sits outside in the hot Texas summer and has freezing temperatures in the winter, these things would crack and leak. And even though they're supposed to go somewhere in the end that's a permanent repository, we don't think they would ever be able to move them. We'd have an above ground leaking site in the middle of the West Texas region, probably forever. So we are absolutely thrilled seven years later to have this massive victory that says the license is no good out of a conservative court. (laughs) I think even conservatives can appreciate the fact that this stuff is deadly and it will not take their politics or their beliefs into account. Radiation's going to do what radiation's going to do. That's exactly right. What kind of opposition 
had to be organized against this. You're with the Seed Coalition, which is based right. in Texas. Who else came on board for this? You know, it's been a long, hard uphill fight because most people in our state did not know what was going on and what was proposed. So Seed Coalition, we're Sustainable Energy and Economic Development. We went and talked to everybody we could, everywhere we could. We've had help from a lot of different people and a lot of different organizations. It's been long and hard and challenging, <laughs> but what we did is went on the road with an educational tour and we talked to people everywhere we could. We went to West Texas, we went to Houston, to San Antonio, to Dallas, and we got resolutions going in many cities and counties that represents over 5 million people. And that really helped to get things going. Now, the site had already been approved. The license had been approved by the NRC. How did this end up in the courts? After we did all of this organizing, we started challenging these things legally. There were hearings that were held, not enough. There were just limited hearings in places that most people couldn't get to. There was a hearing in Andrews County in West Texas and one in Hobbs, New Mexico, which is also close to the site because the Texas site is almost to the border of New Mexico, right on the border. So this is like an eight-hour trip from Houston. The NRC made it difficult for people to be part of this. And in fact, as part of those hearings, we were doing a legal challenge every inch of the way against this licensing. And we've had wonderful pro bono attorneys, Terry Lodge out of Ohio and uh, Wally Taylor with Sierra Club. Uh, they are heroes. Diane Curran represented Beyond Nuclear. Mothers for Peace was part of the efforts with Terry Lodge. We're really proud of, of the other organizations that joined in and we're grateful. There were other organizations as well. And here in Texas, we've had involvement from the League of Women Voters of Texas. Sierra Club folks have helped out too. And some faith-based groups as well, which is really wonderful. It took everything and everybody. We eventually got this to the Texas legislature and this is astonishing. While we were out doing our trips across the state, we got a call from a woman who worked for an oil company. She said she shared our concerns. She knew how dangerous this deadly waste was and not only risks to people's health and safety in the water, but also it could damage their industry because any single leak or crack would ruin things for the oil industry. And they've got billion dollar operations going on all the time. So they said, you know, we oppose this too. And we began collaboration and we set aside our differences because <laughs> I'm solidly opposed to fossil fuels. I understand that role in climate change, but we decided to focus on what we shared in common, which was we did not want this deadly waste coming in. And every inch of the way, they have been really helpful at Faskin Oil and Ranch. They got attorneys too. And pretty soon at the legislature, we were able to work um, Democrats and Republicans and have them listen to us. And we got a vote out of the Texas legislature. There was all but three Texas legislators, almost unanimous. The three that sat it out did it on principle because they did not like the bill's author. We didn't either. Um, so so and, I don't understand that. <laughs> and this bill said 
This bill was a ban on high-level waste coming into our state. So people's efforts, lots of volunteers worked to help get this through the legislature. And then that allowed the governor to take up this case that went to the Fifth Circuit Court. So lots of pieces and lots of time and lots of work on many, many fronts. But we are so excited about this final result. And there were times when we would get really depressed and thinking there's no way this will ever come through. You know, we're going to hang in there and keep fighting. But, you know, this is looking grim. And one of the things we would tell ourselves is, well, you never know how you're going to win. So we just kind of believed that someday we would, but you never know how you're going to win. So we just kind of kept kept hope as best we could. And here we are at this moment of having a massive victory. This is absolutely huge. We are just absolutely thrilled. So does this kill the project completely? Or are you expecting the next wave of gobbledygook coming out of the nuclear industry saying, no, we really need this, blah, blah, blah. And now we're going to start this all over again. Certainly they can do that. Maybe they will. But as for right now, we are considering this a very solid victory. And they can go to the Supreme Court, but it's not all that good for them this time around. Because the part of this case involves that climate change rule, that major questions doctrine, and the Supreme Court was behind that. And to take that apart is not something that they're going to want to do. So the outlook for the applicant at the Supreme Court is not that great. And for the NRC, we think the NRC is probably really reeling from this decision. <laughs> They've been pushing hard for this for a long time. Yeah. And the and the Department of Energy, too, busy out there trying to find sites for more consolidated interim storage. They should give up the concept. They should stop trying to force this on people anywhere. And they should get serious about the sites where we have waste now, getting them to be more safe and more secure before we do anything. And then look at certainly looking at a final repository at some point in time. But that hasn't been happening. So in the meantime, we need to deal with the waste where it is and not risk people's lives across the country trying to transport it in some Band-Aid approach that is never going to work. I always like to point out that there's reference to Yucca Mountain in Nevada as being the permanent repository. But that is a legal fiction because all it is is a tunnel going into a mountain that the government didn't even have the right to go into because it's land that is controlled under treaty by the Western Shoshone people. It's also over an aquifer and it's also over an earthquake fault. So there's a lot wrong with it. And any reference to there being a permanent repository, they always reference Yucca Mountain. And that is a flat out lie. It doesn't exist. But as a legal fiction, it allows them to call any other facility they want to have interim, like, oh, it's only going to be there for a little while, and then we'll move it on. Right. And we totally agree about Yucca Mountain. It couldn't be worse. It was never a good site. It was chosen for political reasons, and it was never scientifically viable. It was an absolute disaster. At one time, they talked about having titanium shields that cost billions of dollars to try to make this site work. It's like it's not a good site. It never was. It was wrong. And it was built to punish Nevada. It was. <laughs> oh, Harry Reid going against nuclear things. They wanted to get back at him. 
Yeah, yeah. So, you know, that's not the way to do it. And if they're going to actually get serious about something underground, they need to be looking at the geology and the science. It's not a good thing. I mean, you know, there's no good answer to this whole problem. We should stop making this waste immediately. But instead, we see, you know, efforts for more reactors. And it's like insanity over and over. I don't know why we have to keep explaining to them how insane this is. <laughs> well, the money involved blinds them to any larger Absolutely. truth. Absolutely. And this wouldn't be happening if it weren't for the money. None of this would be happening. These guys wouldn't have pursued this waste. We wouldn't have small modular reactors proposed in Texas and elsewhere if it weren't for the money flowing. It's all about the money. And, you know, Congress needs to shape it up and stop funding, wasting money that could go for real progress toward climate change. Just put solar panels on top of every building in the United States and we can turn this around. There is also an approved, licensed, quote unquote, interim waste storage facility that has been approved by the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, for New Mexico. How might this judicial decision impact that case? Absolutely. And it may. And we hope in a good way, because there is a similar suit by New Mexico that will have filings in the Fifth Circuit Court. And that's coming up in October. So we have high hopes that that court will once again say, no, this isn't happening. The New Mexico site would take even more waste than the Texas one. And the only real distinction between them is that the waste there would be a little bit above ground and mostly just slightly below ground. Also a horrible, horrible design. If they get water under there, they have no way to pump it out and you name it. It goes on and on. Really, literally, their license application says they could get a hose and pump it out. <laughs> That's their high-tech system. You know, these people are absolutely nuts. <laughs> <laughs> they go on your numb nuts list. Um, <laughs> Regularly. Yes. Yes. Whole tech in that case, you know, who has been uh you know, exceedingly awful all around the whole country. But we hope that this court decision will also impact that site, potentially others that might be under consideration, you know, for the future, because I think the Department of Energy does siting for these sites. And I think they're getting the picture that nobody wants it and that Texas and New Mexico probably aren't going to make it in the long run even though they're licensed, you know, because there is not consent and the DOE is looking at consent. Well, they don't have it. They don't have it from our Republican governor and state. They don't have it with New Mexico with their democratic governor and legislature. So in neither state do they have consent and they shouldn't, <laughs> they should not, they should not get consent anywhere for this. It like, the most harebrained, most idiotic scheme ever. This is obviously an enormous one. We haven't had one of this magnitude for a long time. I can't remember when. What did you do to celebrate? <laughs> so far, we've just been jumping up and down and yelling at the top of our lungs. Um, <laughs> my husband and I went out to dinner, but we haven't had a chance yet to get everybody together, which certainly we're planning to because... A lot of people have worked so long and hard for many, many years, and we are so excited and 
really happy for the implications, not only for our state, but for people throughout the country. This is really good news. Well, when you have that party with your people, I hope you will include Nuclear Hot Seat via Zoom. Sure. <laughs> uh, we'll have lots of good music, some great food. Yeah. <laughs> well, I have to pass on the food, but I'll enjoy the music. <laughs> Karen Haddon, we should always have such joyous occasions to speak with each other. And I want to thank you for, on very short notice, being my guest on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so very much. It's great to be here. That was Karen Haddon of the Seed Coalition in Texas. And I hope she and the others are still celebrating. Next, Mary Dixon. She is an award-winning writer, downwinder, and thyroid cancer survivor, internationally recognized for her advocacy for survivors of nuclear weapons testing. Mary has spoken and written widely about the human cost of the arms race, including twice at the World Forum on Nuclear Survivors in Hiroshima. For the past three years, she has been part of a consortium of downwind communities across the West, as well as national allies, working to expand RECA, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. She wrote an op-ed for the Salt Lake Tribune, and it was so good I asked her to read the piece intact. It was published on August 3rd, 2023. After years of working to get the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, referred to as RECA, expanded by Congress, we are finally seeing an unexpected glimmer of hope, a last-minute amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, which we refer to as the NDAA, passed July 27th by the Senate with 61 votes would expand and extend RECA to include the entire state of Utah and more, giving downwinders access to the program, which has been a lifeline for so many. The Howley Lujan Crapo Amendment is a product of an inspiring moment of bipartisan cooperation between Senator Josh Howley, a Republican of Missouri, Senator Ben Ray Lujan, a Democrat of New Mexico, and Senator Mike Crabo, a Republican of Idaho. In addition to extending RECA 19 years, the amendment expands the program to cover Idaho, New Mexico, Montana, Colorado, and the entire states of Utah, Arizona, and Nevada, as well as additional uranium mining communities, many on tribal lands. It also includes, for the first time, communities exposed to fallout from Trinity, the first atomic test in Los Alamos, New Mexico, in 1945, and to residents of Missouri who were exposed to radioactive waste from the Manhattan Project. While strengthening Eureka had the support of conservatives such as Ted Cruz and Lindsey Graham, Disturbingly, Senators Mike Lee and Mitt Romney, Republicans of Utah, voted against the amendment, though the expansion would be a godsend for their constituents in northern Utah who were excluded from RECA and have suffered life-threatening illnesses as a result of our exposure to radioactive fallout from nuclear tests in Nevada. The amendment's passage is a tremendous victory for those of us in downwind communities across the country who have dedicated ourselves to seeking recognition and justice. 
As we know too well, however, victories can be temporary. The expansion now must survive a conference committee to iron out the differences between the House and Senate versions of the NDAA, which will be a tougher fight. Still, we hold out hope. The stars seem to have aligned in bringing the issue national attention. First, with the release of Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer, which has opened dialogue about the first atomic bomb and its long trail of suffering and death over the past 78 years. If audiences are devastated by the depiction of Trinity, I ask them to think about the 928 nuclear bombs detonated in the desert of Nevada, a hundred of them in the atmosphere and many more powerful than those that leveled Hiroshima and Nagasaki. If audiences are devastated by the depiction of Trinity, I ask them to think about the 928 nuclear bombs detonated in the desert of Nevada, a hundred of them in the atmosphere, and almost all more powerful than those that leveled Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I remind them about the real legacy of Trinity, the staggering number of ordinary people whose lives have been lost or shattered by the production and testing of nuclear weapons. I tell them how radioactive fallout from nuclear tests in Nevada spread across the entire nation to New York, Canada, and beyond our borders, how the government was warned that the prevailing winds in the U.S. blow toward the east and would carry fallout with them, but went ahead with testing in Nevada anyway, under a campaign of secrecy, cover-ups, and lies that has had catastrophic consequences for countless innocent Americans downwind. In July, a Princeton study was released that mapped how fallout from Trinity and atmospheric tests in Nevada extended across the entire country. While it's shocking, those of us who have suffered the consequences have known since a National Cancer Institute study in 1997 that every county in the continental U.S. got some level of fallout from testing. The West was particularly hard hit. I know firsthand how the silent poison was carried on the winds, like the smoke from wildfires far away that we could see and breathe, and how it fell with rain and snow to the earth where it worked its way into the food chain and ultimately into our bodies. I was diagnosed with thyroid cancer in my 20s from my exposure as a child in Salt Lake City. I lost my sister to an autoimmune disease she battled for nine years in 2001. I've lost too many friends and loved ones and listened to heart-wrenching stories of survivors around the West and beyond. In a mad rush to win the Cold War, our government was willing to sacrifice us. It's time for Congress, particularly our delegation, to do the right thing to take care of those who are knowingly put in harm's way. We are the invisible casualties of that undeclared war. Unless the expansion and extension of RECA passes, the program expires next June. Time is running out and more downwinders and uranium miners are dying each day. This may very well 
be our last chance. Award-winning writer, dramatist, downwinder, and thyroid cancer survivor, Mary Dixon. We want to take this moment to give our respect and deepest acknowledgement to Tina Cordova, co-founder of the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, cancer survivor, and a fierce frontline warrior on behalf of RECA Expansion. I don't know that this would have happened without her. We'll have more good news in just a moment, but first, isn't it terrific to recognize that the nuclear industry doesn't win them all? But note that in every case cited today, there has been a long history of activism to stop nuclear from crossing yet another line that shouldn't be crossed. Without awareness, pushback, lobbying, information, and the tireless yet very tiring push toward sanity represented by those who fight against nuclear, those guys would get away with anything and everything, no matter how numbnuts. It takes information, attention, and action to make certain they don't get whatever they want whenever they want it. And that's why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We are an information hub. We interview frontline activists, scour newspapers, group newsletters, and email from around the world to bring you a concise yet wide-ranging picture of today's ugly nuclear truths. We give you nuclear stories with context, continuity, and an appropriate sense of outrage to help you understand what this one industry has been able to get away with and why they must be stopped. We're fighting for the future, not only yours, but through your DNA, your children, grandchildren, and beyond. But to continue to do so, we need your help. This show runs on donations, and without them, we can't pay the bills and we'll be gone. So if you want to help us keep going, the time to support us is now. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, click on the red Donate button, and follow the prompts. If you have Zelle, you can send money directly to info at NuclearHotSeat.com. Either way, be it a one-time donation of any amount or a recurring monthly donation, say the same as a cup of coffee, about $5 a month, we will deeply appreciate it. And we're a 501c3 nonprofit, which means your donations are tax-deductible. So don't wait. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com to donate right now. Whatever you can do to help, you have my deepest gratitude. Now, back to more good nuclear news. Dave Kraft is a safe energy anti-nuclear advocate and co-founder of Nuclear Education Information Service, NEIS, based in Chicago, where he has served as its director since its inception in 1981. Dave's work is to provide the public with credible information about the hazards and effects of nuclear power and waste and the viable means to replace them. He has testified in hearings related to nuclear power at the state and federal levels and is a co-founder of the Radiation Monitoring Project designed to provide training and field monitors to communities contaminated by radioactive substances. I spoke with Dave Kraft on June 25, 2023. Dave Kraft, Illinois has had a very good law on its books regarding new nuclear reactor bills in the state. What was that law? We're talking about the 1987 Illinois Nuclear Power Construction Moratorium. It was a very simple law based on a precedent in California that had already passed Supreme Court muster, which simply said that Illinois will not allow the construction of more nuclear power plants 
until the federal government has a permanent waste disposal facility. And I underscore that word disposal, not storage, not file and forget, disposal, permanent. And that has served us very well. And the purpose then was to make sure that Illinois wouldn't become a de facto high-level radioactive waste dump for the country. Since we already had the most high-level radioactive waste, intuitively, if the feds decided to do something goofy in the meantime, Illinois could have been a real target for taking more waste from other states. Unfortunately, that never happened. And also, fortunately, we didn't build very many more nuclear plants. As it stands right now, we have about 11,000 tons of high-level radioactive waste in Illinois, which is more than any other state. So in a way, I guess you could say it worked. <laughs> Something in government worked. So jump up and down. So this is a law that worked. What move was made against it and by whom and when did this take place? In 2022, we had some folks who genuinely are not concerned about climate, who knows, some legislators felt that it was time to repeal the nuclear moratorium so that we could perhaps make Illinois more attractive for companies to come in and invest in this so-called next generation of nuclear power. It goes by various names. We have these small modular nuclear reactors, SMNRs. You also have what are called advanced reactors. And I would point out that there is a federal definition of what constitutes an advanced reactor, and this will be important in a minute. So... We had a couple of legislators, some perhaps well-intended, one in particular, not necessarily so. We joke about her being the excellent employee of the year sometimes. She has long championed nuclear power. She has nuclear power plants in her district. Together, the two legislators put forward legislation that would repeal the Illinois nuclear power moratorium so that it would make it possible sometime in the future to build more nuclear plants or at least attract investors to do that. Now, there were seven different hearings conducted in various committees on the House and Senate floors prior to the passage of this unfortunate legislation called SB 76. And the legislation to repeal did pass both the Illinois House and the Senate in this legislative session. Miraculously, the governor vetoed the bill. And I can't say for sure that we were responsible for that, but the arguments that we put forward in those seven different hearings were pretty much the arguments that the governor used to justify his veto. Namely, that the legislation had a language change at the very last minute, which advocated for advanced nuclear reactors. What that did is advanced reactors, by definition, can be as large as the reactors we have right now. They're not small modulars necessarily. And that, he felt, was a betrayal of what was negotiated or what was discussed over the last six months. So that was one of the reasons. He said he would not open Illinois up to just any old kind of reactor. And he was also not very satisfied with the current situation in terms of guaranteeing safety on the part of the federal regulators or uh, what would happen in the future. Now, we had pointed out many other logical fallacies with this whole process, namely that the so-called small modulars would not even be available as a demonstrator until 2029, let alone commercially, which would be the middle of the 2030s. Whether that resonated with the governor or not, we're not sure, because shortly after his veto, he made public statements saying he was in favor of small modular nuclear reactors, even though they won't be available for maybe another decade. So I can't profess to understand 
what is going on in the minds of legislators at this point. But we, at least for the time being, have stopped this horrible legislation, stopped the repeal of the moratorium. And we know that we will have a legislative fight in the fall veto session beginning in October when the pro-nuclear folks will correct the errors that they built into their previous legislation and try again to get the moratorium repealed. That's where we stand at the moment. How surprised were you and the others who worked against this bill by the governor's veto? Everyone is absolutely stunned, including some of our legislative allies who uh, you know, voted to uphold the moratorium. As much as a week before the governor's veto, they were all telling us it's over, it's a done deal, you know, it's going to pass, it's going to go through. So he surprised everybody. Apparently, the governor's office keeps decisions very, very close to their chests because we were getting feedback from legislators saying that they don't even have access to the governor's ideas at times. I suppose we should feel good about that since he certainly did not respond to any of the seven letters and packets that we had sent to his office. But at the same time, it makes it really difficult to understand if there's any rational thinking going on at all. And if so, what is it based on? Certainly in nuclear, it's hard to find any rational thinking behind it. Now, we can understand some of the legislators who felt they were trying to do something in terms of the climate crisis. But we repeatedly pointed out that, look, the reactors won't be available to meet the IPCC target of 2030. We also pointed out that at the, on the very day that our Illinois Senate passed the legislation, an 800 megawatt solar installation broke ground in the very county where the state capital is. And we said, look, these are jobs you got now. This is electricity that you will have available next year, not in 10 years. This is electricity that will make the grid more reliable now, not in 10 years. None of these arguments seem to register with people. And many folks who we would have thought would have voted to keep the moratorium in place and oppose new nuclear actually voted in favor of the repeal. So we're very baffled as what's going on. But we had already resigned ourselves to losing this one and already started instituting Plan B, which will begin at the end of September. We intend to do a four-city Central Illinois tour, speaking about small modular nuclear reactors and their problems and liabilities. And we are also going to be showing a fantastic 45-minute documentary called Atomic Bamboozle. You can see the video clip of it on YouTube, which was the preview of it. Very well put together, professionally done, excellent information. One of the key people in this video is uh, R.V. Ramana from uh, Vancouver, British Columbia who just eviscerates the whole idea of small modulars being climate solutions or any other solution other than providing shareholder money and Department of Energy grants for the corrupt people. This is a great opportunity for us to educate not only the general public and our environmental colleagues who are still sitting on the fence about nuclear power, but also the legislators who may have actually themselves been bamboozled into voting the wrong way on SB 76. How has the nuclear industry responded that you've been able to perceive so far? Well, they do what they do best. They hire marketing and advertising firms and spew out misinformation. And one of the big arguments was that the governor was absolutely wrong in interpreting the idea of advanced reactors could result in the big nukes being built again. You go online. I did a 15-minute Google search, and I came up with three or four 
professional <laughs> definitions of advanced reactors, which all say that they can be as large as 1500 megawatts, which is about one and a half times the size of the largest reactor we have in Illinois right now. You can go low if you choose, if you build small modulars, but the law wasn't, it didn't advocate for small modulars. It advocated for advanced reactors. And the governor was right. Now we had warned them about this, that yes, small modulars are advanced, but not all advanced reactors are small. <laughs> and <laughs> that was the piece that really broke the legislation and resulted in the veto. So that's one of the arguing points that the nuclear industry is throwing out there, even though it is absolutely, totally false and can be proved in about a 10 minute Google search. For now, this is a moment of terrifically good news. What did you and perhaps the others who've been fighting against this for so long do to celebrate? We took the day off to start with, patted <laughs> each other on the back, sent the thank yous around to the people who advocated, uh, you know, to uphold the moratorium. You know, we did our homework. We also did a couple of op-eds, again, showing why the governor was right and sent it out to various publications. But I mentioned that we had already moved on plan B because what I feel has happened is that this has provided the opportunity for us to really show that this isn't an argument about should it be small reactors or medium reactors or safe reactors and can reactors coexist with renewables to fight climate change. All of that is public relations nonsense. What this really turned into was a piece of Trojan horse legislation designed to advance the next generation of nuclear power in Illinois at the expense of a two-year fight for a legislation called CJA, the Climate and Equitable Jobs Act, which was passed in 2021, which would have promoted renewables and efficiency. So what we are trying to get across to people now is the days of arguing about nonsense and little piecemeal stuff is over. This was really a referendum on, are we gonna have a pro-nuclear future in Illinois? or a renewable energy future, Illinois. And the time for equivocation on the part of environmental groups, legislators is over. As uh, James Hightower of Texas once said, the only thing in the middle of the road are yellow stripes and dead armadillos. It's time for the environmental community as a whole to galvanize around a renewable energy future and not a nuclear energy future. And that's really what is being unleashed here. We are going to force this issue that it's a referendum time and we want a renewable energy future, not another generation of Exelon or Constellation reactors. Dave Kraft of NEIS, Nuclear Energy Information Service, in Chicago. By the way, we will have links up to his group and all of the others on our website, NuclearHotSeat.com, under this episode, number 638. Next, Manajo Green. She spent 23 years as the Environmental Action Director of Hudson River Sloop Clearwater, a post from which she only recently retired. The group seeks to protect the Hudson River and surrounding wetlands and waterways through advocacy and public education. It was founded by folk singer Pete Seeger with his wife Toshi Seeger in 1966 and has worked long and hard to first shut down the Indian Point nuclear reactors, located only 35 miles from Broadway in New York, to mandating the proper handling of radioactive waste, most especially as regards the water of the Hudson River. Here, Manajo Green lets us know what the situation was and what has just happened. 
We spoke on September 1st, 2023. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Are you quote unquote retired now? Are you emeritus? Are you the ruling goddess over this whole thing? I mean, what's your official title now? Well, I have retired after 23 years with Hudson River Sloop Clearwater as their environmental action director, but I still work um, as an Ulster County legislator where I chair energy, environment, and sustainability and the Climate Smart Committee. So I keep plenty busy and I have been working on Indian Point very actively since 9-11-2001. So um, I track what's going on and celebrate the victory and help overcome the challenges. Terrific. And I'm so glad you could be on the show today. Um, what is what happened at Indian Point? It was decommissioned in 2021. And what has happened between then and most water? So the fuel pools were meant to keep those spent fuel rods um, cool enough until they cooled down enough to put into uh, a metal canister inside a concrete cask. And um, that completed uh, for fuel pool two and I believe also fuel pool three, but if not, it's in process. They want to fuel pools. And the, um, the owner of the company now is Holtec, who claim that they specialize in decommissioning. And they want to discharge approximately 1.3 million gallons of tree, but still very oh, I, I, Excuse me, I think you misspoke because you said $1.3 million. No, I said gallons. It may have sounded like dollars. Then, then my, my apologies, because that's my ears. I have a hearing disability and sometimes it glitches. I'm sorry I interrupted you. So if you could just pick it up there it, with the $1.3 million. Yes, Holtec company that now owns specialized in decommissioning is planning to discharge 1.3 million gallons of treated but still highly radioactive water into the Hudson River. Um, over the past few years, Clearwater and our allies uh, in the stock, we became aware of that plan. We held two forums and brought experts in the impacts both on the ecology of the river and people living in uh, proximity to releasing radioactive material into the Hudson River, more than what is already actually leaking from uh, problems with uh, containment on site. Uh, the groundwater under the plant is already really contaminated and leaking into the river. But this would be an intentional discharge over a period of months of 1.3 million gallons of additional radioactive water into her. What kind of legal push formed at 
I'll go. I'll hold off on that because I want to give it a get to the fact that on um, August 18th, you got some good that again. What legal actions have been taken over the course of this to try and stop Holtec? Well, um, the first and I think most important thing was um, of legislation prevent that. Uh, and uh, and a great deal of research because we believe that New York State, particularly Department of Environment and Department of Health, should be taking leadership in protecting the Hudson River. And they have stated on numerous occasions that they don't have the jurisdiction that anything radioactive, that's the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. But we have looked into not the case. They can essentially exert and home rule and there are uh, many laws that embody that jurisdiction uh, and, and say that the state can ship. But also we've uh, done massation and that resulted in a lot of media attention and public opinion and um, Dana Levenberg and Harkham in the Senate, Dana in the New York State Assembly um, sponsored in those parts of the legislature a bill to prevent the discharge of radioactive material into the Hudson River. Originally, it was be to any water body in New York State, but I think they felt that it was urgent and important to protect the Hudson River um, because of these planned discharges. So they narrowed the focus and um, we did a lot of education. Uh, over 400,000 people signed a petition. I believe it was 32 municipalities and five counties, including the I uh, live and work in Hunter County, but also Rockland um, and uh, Westchester and, and several other county legislatures the governor to sign that legislation and protect the Hudson River. What happened 18th of 2023? Passed back in June, and it sat on the governor's desk for several months, during which time we had a lot of information. And I think the governor made call to the attorney general's office and anyone that should until she fully convinced that this was the right action to take, and she signed the bill. We feel that this is historic and precedent-setting that a governor of New York would um, pass to protect our one of our major rivers, and that all of the other reactors, reactor communities across the nation that are either actively going through decommissioning or will be facing decommissioning in the future. And, and that's over 90 facilities. Were you expecting this result? I was cautiously optimistic. Um, uh, Governor Hochul has not taken a strong prior to this, but I think partly because of uh, the 
amount of public pressure, but also because we had the facts and the laws on our side. And, and given that, um, I think she realized that it was the right thing to do. And uh, we're still, but even now we don't know what Holtec will do in response. Uh, it's possible they could decide to violate the law and and discharge and bear the the penalties are not high that uh, they may be discouraged. On the other hand, if they want to maintain a reputation, they have a terrible reputation, malfeasance and other bribery and, and lying to authorities. If they want to store their reputation, then violating news is not a good way to do that. So um, there may also be a lawsuit challenging. So although we're thrilled doing the right thing and setting this important precedent, we're also uh, remaining to be cautious to see how this plays out and doing everything we can to, for example, get a temporary restraining order or an injunction or some way to ensure that this action cannot be taken. Staying in the moment, been doing to celebrate you and the others. <laughs> well, I think because it's still challenging, there isn't a great deal of celebration. Although I am treating myself uh, to celebrate, and the governor's uh, historic going up to. Uh, a beautiful um, resort in this area and treating myself and us to dinner mountain house. <laughs> That's what I'm going to do. Uh, but uh, it, it's, it's not over till it's over. And a little bit cautious about selling, but we are also cheering each other on because it took a lot of work, a lot of convincing people being in contact with their elected officials at the state and federal level. Um, and we've seen very positive uh, responses from the officials across the board um, uh, thanking Governor Hochul for taking that action that was supported and had bipartisan support up and down uh, the chain of command. Um, and I, in one house, I believe the um, uh, assembly where it passed 100% and in the Senate, a strong majority, bipartisan, and we also have support, bipartisan support at the federal level. So I think protecting our and public health are important priorities. Um, the Clean Water Act uh, was passed for a very good reason. We've seen the Hudson uh, become cleaner. It has stopped being a dumping ground for a variety of uh, toxins and other pollutants um, and uh, radioactive material tritiated water should not be an exception and do not need to be. We have the law on our side. 
we just have to ensure, and I think that this bill and the governor signing the bill will send a loud message to um, the departments that have jurisdiction uh, to take action and prevent this discharge. Man and Joe, congratulations to you and all the others who worked so hard, so long to be able to push this through. And I know the vigilance will continue, but for now, truly, I hope everyone takes this moment and just recognizes that, yes, this is something to celebrate and let's give it a big woohoo. Thank you so much. That was Mana Joe Green, recently retired after spending 23 years as the Environmental Action Director of Hudson River Sloop Clearwater. There are more pieces of good news, too, too many to fit on this program. They include, in Massachusetts, a ban being passed by the legislature on Holtec, the so-called decommissioning company, dumping radioactive tritium-contaminated water from the defunct Pilgrim nuclear reactor into Cape Cod Bay. There's also the new national monument seeming to put uranium mining in the Grand Canyon off-limits for good. But as I've learned, there are aspects to that story we need to be aware of and explore, and that will be the subject of an upcoming nuclear hot seat. But times to celebrate don't come to us as frequently as we like or as we deserve. So please, savor the moment. Pat yourself and your favorite anti-nuclear activist on the back. Find a way that's appropriate for you to celebrate. And only then, gird your loins for the next battle, which will inevitably be starting mere moments from now. I'm celebrating all these wins by taking time off-grid in the woods. So enjoy this show and trust that while you are listening, I'm off hugging trees and detoxing from technology. Everything nuclear will still be there when I get back, so for one week, it's out of my brain. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, September 12, 2023. If you'd like to get Nuclear Hot Seat delivered via email every week, it's the easiest way for you to get the show and never miss a single episode. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com. You can't miss that big yellow box. Put in your first name and your email address and bam, it'll be there. Or you can sign up on your favorite podcast channel. We don't care. Just get the show and listen to it. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2023, Libby Halevi, Nuclear Hot Seat, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. That means if you cite anything on this program, you give our website, the name of whoever it was whose comments you used, and me. It's little enough to pay. For now... This is Libby Halevi of Nuclear Hot Seat reminding you, as President Franklin Delano Roosevelt once said, when you get to the end of your rope, tie a knot in it and hang on. That's your weekly nuclear wake-up call, so whatever you do, do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. <laughs>